The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm hoping the Big Ten has to modify their system for us. <laughs> it's probably like getting grade 10 sandpaper rubbed on your face every day. I mean, we say it all the time, whether, you know, there's two types of turds, you're a sinker or you're a floater, but you're still a turd, right? I mean, um, we're, we're, we are about players and players playing the plays and not necessarily the plays. Welcome to the Varsity Club Podcast. My name is Derek Peterson. Joining me this week, I'm very excited to have Mitch Sherman from The Athletic on board. Mitch Hello, thank you for coming on. How are you? I am good, Derek. Good to uh, talk to you. Long time no see. Looking forward to uh, seeing you in uh, in uh, Madison in a few weeks. But yeah. uh, always good to always good to chat. I will be there. I, I appreciate you you taking some time. Before we get to Nebraska, I have a question for you. So Halloween just happened. What kind of Halloween homeowner adult are you are you like you dress up in in costumes to answer the door for kids bringing candy do you like critique the costumes that you see at your door and be like hey you can have some candy but first I have to know what the heck it is you're wearing or are you just like put a bag of candy on the front porch a sign on the door don't bother me take what you want hmm um probably closest to number three, I think it really depends. Uh, for me, uh, you know, as as I've gone through the different stages of parenthood and homeownership, um, it, it depends on like what's going on in my kids' lives. Um, my kids are now 15 and 10, so my daughter, who's a freshman in high school, she's at that stage where she wants the candy, but she doesn't want to have to go trick or treating, which is, you know, that doesn't really work. Um, so, and I, and you know, I'm fine. I think I would prefer it at this point with her. She's in high school that she not go out and trick or treat, but whatever she wants to do it. So she disappeared. We could barely even get a picture of her. Um, she disappeared at like six o'clock on Halloween. My son, who's 10, you know, definitely still in like the sweet spot for being able to go out and get candy. Although the cool costumes are kind of winding down. This year, there was little to no conversation about what he was going to be for Halloween. And then on Thursday at school, they were supposed to get dressed up. The night before, we went looking for his Salvador Perez jersey. That was, this, and this probably would have been the last time that he would ever have worn it because it was purchased maybe three, two, three years ago. And it's just getting too small on him. So he's going to be a catcher. He's just going to strap on his like, actual catcher's gear from baseball season, put on a Perez jersey and call it a costume. Well, he couldn't find the jersey. So then he had to audible and he basically ended up going as himself. Like he wore his baseball jersey. Um, (laughs) It was a a weak attempt at a costume. So my own enthusiasm for Halloween, it kind of, it kind of like um, mirrors my kids. And I, I, I enjoy going out with them and walking around and um, hanging out with friends in the neighborhood who are also walking their kids around and having kind of a adult social time to go with uh, keeping one eye on the kids. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if I am stuck at home, um, if I am stuck at home handing out candy. Um, I don't care. You know, I, the only thing that bothers me is when like the 20 year old comes to the door, but, uh, yeah. um, I don't care what they're, I don't care what they're wearing. They can take, they can take a handful. They can take one. We'll leave it on the, we'll leave it on the porch. If my wife and I are both out walking around the neighborhood. So, um, that's probably more of a breakdown than you wanted, but, uh, um, that's the format. No, this is actually a Halloween podcast where we're just going to talk about Halloween procedures and costumes. Um, I remember when I realized I was a little too old to start doing it. It was when I I really mailed in the costume. I just put a hat on and taped a leaf to the front of it. When people would answer the door and I would ask for candy, I would just blow some air into the leaf to make it go forward. And people would say, what what the heck are you? I'd be like, I'm a leaf blower. Um, At that point, I was like, yeah, it's probably time to just move on. Um, I definitely am looking forward to parenthood though, where I can be the dad that sits out on the front porch, dressed up like a scarecrow or like something that is sitting there that is not a live person holding a bowl of candy. Uh, and then if someone takes more than one, then I can jump scare them. Um, that's, that's the kind of dad that I, uh, I anticipate being, um, yeah, we had a, we did have a, we did have a, um, statuesque adult, um, sitting in a rocking chair, on a patio around the corner from our house this year, one of the first houses that we hit when we went out. So it wasn't quite dark yet and didn't have the full scare effect, but I was scared when I saw him move. I, th- I thought it was a mannequin or something. And I was scared when I saw him move, like standing at the bottom of the driveway. So the kids up on the porch, man, that uh, my, my, my hat, I tip my hat to that guy. And I say that uh, I probably will never do that. Um, when my kids are done trick-or-treating if I'm like longing for some of the experience I, I, I could possibly uh, get involved in that kind of a way but I, I, I never have and, and don't really see it happen yeah when I was when I was younger my parents never went all out in terms of Halloween decorations and I always said I'm gonna be that guy I'm not gonna it's not gonna be crazy for Christmas I'm not gonna be like Clark Griswold but I'm gonna I'm gonna go all out for Halloween and as I've gotten older I've been like I, I don't really want to deal with putting it all up and taking it all down. So we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. One year here, last thing, one year I played some music in the garage, like some scary Halloween music on Spotify. Um, and I like put a speaker in the garage and cracked the bottom of the garage open so that as the kids walked up to my garage, they could hear this, this like creaking doors and scary music. And, and it was, I thought it was great. And my wife basically just made fun of me for it the whole night and was like, why, why are you doing that? And uh, so that was a one year experience and uh, um, never, never have gone back to that or, or really anything close to it. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, nothing like wives making fun of you. Um, we, so mm-hmm. on this podcast today, we're, we're obviously going to talk a little bit about Nebraska, Ohio State. I have Carolyn Rice from the Ozone joining me later on the podcast to, to give us some insight into the Buckeyes. They've had a, an interesting season, to say the least. Um, they, they are starting to look more like the Ohio State that everybody expects to see year in and year out after uh, an interesting start to the year. Um, so we'll, we'll get thoughts from her in a little bit. Um, Mitch, you had a, a really interesting column after Nebraska's loss to Purdue. I want to talk to you about there are a couple other things that we're going to talk about that are Nebraska-specific. Um, first, a couple of housekeeping things. Mitch is on the Big Ten Show podcast, the Big Ten Football Show with Scott Docterman this week. It's a really good show. He's on there frequently. Go listen to that. Um, Mitch writes for The Athletic. And if you don't have an athletic subscription, you need to get one because it's really, really good. Um, also, on the Hale Varsity Network of podcasts, there's a whole 
bunch of them and I'm not going to run through every single name, but make sure you go to hailvarsity.com backslash network, check them out. Listen to everybody's show. They're really good. Also subscribe to Hail Varsity if you haven't already. It's hailvarsity.com backslash subscribe. Mitch, I want to start with you um, on this topic. One of the things, so Nebraska's lost every single game this year by eight points or less. And then going back to last year, each of their last eight losses have come by eight points or less, which is technically a score. Um, there has been some pushback on that particular piece of it that I've noticed in recent weeks of people saying, well, there's a garbage time touchdown that makes it look closer than it was. Nebraska did exactly that against Purdue, and then they didn't get the onside kick. They almost had it, but they didn't get it. Um, and, and there's been a little bit of talk of, you know, for people that use Nebraska's one score losses as justification for saying that, hey, Nebraska is close. There has also been people that have said, well, those one score losses aren't exactly one score losses because they had to score multiple times in the fourth quarter to win the game. And they only got one or in some instances they got none. Let's start there because that's kind of really, I think Frost is five and 16 or five and 17 now or whatever the record is in, in one score possessions, um, which is a lot of games to, to play that close in yeah. just four years. Oh, are, are, do you think that, that that is an indicator of, progress of something or, or do you think it's more it's, it's one of the the fluky things with nebraska football i don't think it's fluky at this point i believe it's 23 out of 41 games that he's coached in nebraska have been decided by eight points or fewer so that's you know if that's if that's a one-year uh pattern or maybe even like one year and then part of another you could say well that's just the way the ball has rolled and these things tend to balance themselves out over time. I, I no longer look at it like that. I look at it like this is just the way that his team is built to play. And it's partly indicative of the Big Ten. There are more close games. You know, I'm saying this anecdotally. I'm not looking at, at data between the Big Ten and the Pac-12 or the SEC. But there seem to be more close games in the Big Ten, particularly in the Big Ten West than most conferences. And, you know, that's not the style of play that Scott Frost uh, grew up as a coach refining his, his, uh, his skills around. At Oregon, they made their living by blowing teams out. And that's what happened at UCF in the big turnaround season two. Those little things that win you close games, they were not emphasized at those two stops for the most part, for Scott Frost. Yes, you get into the Peach Bowl against Auburn in 17, and they're absolutely going to have to do some of the fundamental things right, and credit to that staff and that team for, for being able to do it. But at that point, when you're 12-0, and 0, uh, you know, it's, I think it's considerably more uh, manageable to be able to focus on those kind of things because you have the confidence that you're going to win. You, just, you know, they talk about, we talk about, knowing how to win, learning how to win. And that team had, had already done that. So, uh, no, it's not, it's not fluky. It's not, it's not about luck. Um, it's about the way your team is coached. And I, don't, I, you know, I, I think very little uh, out there in the, the football realm shines more light on the importance of coaching or the, um, the, level, of, uh, the level of aptitude within that coaching staff than its record over the long term 
in close games. If you're losing every game big, winning every game big, it's got more to do with the players. But if you're losing 70, 80% of your close games or winning that percentage, you know, like Michigan State, for instance, this year, winning all of its close games, again, I'd like to see that over a period of more than one year. Um, but I think that's a direct reflection on the, the job, the work that your head coach and, and assistant coaches are, are doing, um, not just on Saturday, not just uh, in, in the four months of the football season, but all year round in everything that they're doing. I, I, it, it all comes down or it, it all pours into that one category of close games. That, that's, um, I think there's an impact on everything that they do in the way that this team and, and all teams perform in close games. So that's a really interesting way to look at it. I mean, one of the things you look at close games, probabilistically, when you're in the preseason, when you're in the offseason and you're trying to look at teams and trying to project, okay, who's going to be better this year than they were last year? You look at close games and you say, okay, well, this team played a handful of close games. They lost more than they should have because a game is 50-50. And when it's close at the end with either team having a chance to win, it's 50-50. And so the expectation is that you're around 50-50 in those games. And if you're under, then you can you can usually project that the team that was under is is going to you know figure out how to fix the issues that plagued it in those close games. And then they're going to win a little bit more than 50-50 the following year. You can, you can, you can usually project, okay, this team's going to be a little bit better based off of what we saw from last season. But with Nebraska, there's like, it, it's just, it stays the same every year. They're, they're, they, for a lot of the reasons that you just said, they, they haven't been able to fix the things at the end. And, you know, specifically like games are not decided by one play, but Nebraska's had a bunch of possessions in the last four minutes of games with a chance to tie or take the lead. And they have no points. I think it's 15 of 16 possessions they haven't scored on. Um, and look at the overtime thing. Look at the overtime thing. And this goes predates Frost. But you can go all the way back to um, 2015. I, I believe the last overtime game that Nebraska played when it scored a point, just a point, not, not, not won the game, but just scored a point, had a productive possession in overtime was the 2014 game against Iowa. So it's, um, yeah, it's not, it's, 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 Close game situations. It's, overtime is obviously a close game situation. You know, I, I think it's um, it's all very um, indicative of, of systemic issues in the program that go beyond like the coaching that happens in that moment. So, so here's the question, and and all roads lead back to this central topic of should Frost stay, should Frost go, and the question that I posed last week, whenever it was to to the Hale Varsity team, was like if. It, it, Michigan State, the punt goes left instead of right. Does a different coach fix that? And so when you talk about like overtime issues predating Frost, I'm just curious, like, like what do you think is is not the fix because there are a bunch of issues, but like what is it? What is a fix that like if you're the head coach, like you're going to try to implement this to try to, I, I don't know, try to massage some of the issues that you've had late in close games. Well, I don't think you can fix it by necessarily addressing the symptoms. Um, and the symptoms are, uh, you know, a, a fumble with two minutes left in the game when the score is tied at the 50-yard line or a, 
an errant punt, like you mentioned, that went to the wrong side of the field at Michigan State in the final minutes when your defense had played lights out for an entire second half. I don't think that you can fix the problem, the larger problem, by addressing the smaller symptoms, by saying, okay, we're going to teach our punter how to do this right. Well, then something else is going to crop up. That's just the way it's been with this program for a long, long time at this point. And again, and again that predates fraud. That goes, that, goes back, that goes back 20 years. So I, I think you have to address it at the root. And that, again, Derek, comes down to everything that happens under the whole large umbrella of your program. It is paying attention to details in February when you're self-scouting as a staff. It is preparations for spring practice in March and how those practices are structured. It is um, evaluations that uh, take place in recruiting for future classes and current classes and um, the way that uh, players are managed on the roster um, in this unusual um, unusual to in comparison to, to, to past eras time um, as as players consider uh, transferring so much more common commonly than, than in the past all of that stuff needs to be evaluated and you know it, 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 it all impacts how thing comes out and looks um, on on Saturdays in the fall so uh, I think when you see problems that have repeated themselves in the way that they have for Nebraska on the field this year and, you know, under frost and, and previous coaches, uh, it's, it, it, it's program wide where, where the, the, the evaluation needs to occur. And I think everything needs to be looked at and, and considered as a potential adjustment to make the, the little things work right uh, when they get into those, those pressure situations. One of the, the more um, ear-catching, eyeball-opening things that, that Frost said after the Purdue game was, was maybe I, – I don't, I don't know how he meant it. He said, good talent, not great talent. Um, for me personally, talent's not an issue. It doesn't sound like for you talent is an issue. And given everything that we just talked about um, – are you surprised that Nebraska is sitting here at three and six right now with three games left to play? Yeah. I didn't think the season would go this way. Um, maybe I should have, uh, because when you look at some of the past paths that Nebraska football has taken itself on, this probably is less of a surprise look, you know, in hindsight, then it would have been if this team was seven and two right now and had, you know, caught some breaks and found a way to win a big game on the road against the top 10 team. I think that would have been more of a surprise looking at it in the moment, in the moment of those games. Yeah. It's surprising that they lost, but step back, you take a larger look. It's not surprising necessarily that the struggles have continued. Three and six is pretty, pretty dramatic. That's a pretty dr dramatic um, <laughs> statement about 
what has happened with this team. And I know there are a ton of metrics out there that indicate Nebraska is a much better team than what its record says. And I would agree it is with its talent, but it's not with its execution um, and with its focus on fundamentals, with its attention to details, with its, uh, with its, uh, the way that it has mastered the specific items that help win games in the big 10. <laughs> That's it's, it's not a top, a top team in that regard. I was surprised you brought up the comment about uh, Frost needing to motivate his team and great teams don't need to be motivated. Uh, how that discussion turned to what the talent of this team is. I would agree there. This doesn't need to be a the talent is not the issue. This doesn't need to be a, a, a much more talented team than it is. They have the talent on this roster to be seven and two, to be six and three. If Nebraska was six and three right now, bowl eligible and had these three games lined up at the end of the season, I think there would be a lot of excitement and there is plenty of talent on that roster for them to be there or even a game or two better. Eight and one would be extreme. That would be like the opposite of what we've seen this year where all the breaks were going for Nebraska instead of seemingly against Nebraska. But, you know, it happens in college football. It happens probably just as often as this kind of a thing that we've seen with the 2021 uh, Huskers happens just on, on, on the other side of it. We haven't seen that happen in Nebraska in, in a long time. But, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of stuff that happened in 1997, when Scott Frost was the quarterback and they won a game because uh, a player kicked the ball up in the air and, and the receiver was in the right place and then it went to overtime and they made the plays. It's the opposite. It's like the opposite world of, of what we're living in right now watching this team. Yeah. Um, the uh, <laughs> You bring up 97 and I think about – so in the Purdue broadcast, I know you were there so you weren't watching it on TV. I was watching it on TV during – it was right before Adrian's pick six interception. They were, they were showing highlights of Frost from the 97 season and talking about one of the talking points that Frost had had with the, the crew that was doing that game before the game was that he's, he's waiting for Adrian to have that kind of redemption moment at Nebraska that he got to experience um, in, in 97 and just, there was just something about, I don't know if it was irony. There was just something about that moment of having Frost say that seeing him in 97 and then the very next play, the quarterback that he's talking about, throw a pick six. And, and really it was a a pretty um, it's not a throw that you would see a fourth year quarterback make very often. Um, There was just, there was just something about that. And when you talk about like attention to detail um, that, stands out to me you talk about you know you mentioned nebraska looks good in some of the models some of the, the you know like s p plus i put a lot of stock into nebraska's 24th in s p plus i think against purdue i think they had a 93 percent um post-game win probability um they're they're 31st offensively in that model 31st in the country they're 19th defensively in that model do you want to guess or maybe you know uh what their special teams rank is in s p plus uh, I I don't know, but I would say it's in the 120s. Yes, yeah, 128th. Um, 
that's not that's good. Attention, that's attention to, to detail. To clarify. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there there are 130 FBS teams. <laughs> that's that's attention to detail right there. Um, you know, special teams in a lot of instances just comes down to did you do your job? And fortunately for Nebraska, it, 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 you know, we know what it is. So you, you know, made the- ESPN couldn't have, ESPN couldn't have planned that any better to have had the 97 conversation. And you know, Frost made a similar comment on Monday this week in the press conference about how how much he wants to ha- Adrian to be able to have that moment where he leads Nebraska to a big game. And, and, you know, I thought it was a nice thing for him to say at the time, you know, I don't think that's necessarily, it doesn't necessarily need to be at odds with uh, him coaching the team to also win games. I mean, you can want your quarterback to have a great moment and also be committed to coaching the team to win games. But I was kind of surprised at the reaction um, you know, mostly on social media where everything's an overreaction, but yeah. um, that's one way to gauge the, the temperature of the fan base. And I was kind of surprised at the blowback to that comment where it, there were, there were a lot of responses from, uh, from fans like, you know, why is his attention focused on getting Martinez a big win when he should be focused on doing everything he can to win games for the team. And, you know, I, I, it's a good it's an it's a it's an interesting point um but again i don't know if it's 100 percent fair to frost because if the quarterback does well uh, presumably the team is going to do well presumably yes in most instances yes um it hasn't well, always I, worked that way for nebraska right yeah. um we'll get there in a second but first you, you made the comment if nebraska had, like beaten a top 10 team um things would look different well they got a chance mm-hmm. they have one of those guys on their schedule um this weekend against Ohio state. They also have games against Wisconsin and Iowa upcoming. So if you're talking about like the heavy hitters on a, on a schedule, just in any given season for Nebraska, you got three of them, one after the other. Um, your post-game column for Purdue, it, you wrote that it felt like this was the beginning of, of the end. Now I'm not going to, get too in, into that story um, people should go read it if they didn't already um, but I want to ask you it, it is there any what what can be done in the last three games that would change your mind is it simply like being competitive against these three teams Does, is it beating one or two of these last three teams like what can be done that will change your mind about the direction that they're headed well, I would need to see what I would what I would define as the team turning a corner. And I wrote uh, in my Monday piece about the promise that Scott Frost made two years ago in this week after a loss to Purdue that was that, that a bye week followed that loss against Purdue at home. And Frost made the comment in that bye week about when this thing turns, it's going to really turn. To paraphrase him, fast. Mm-hmm. He was saying, "Be patient." Because when we get there, it's gonna it's gonna pop, it's gonna explode, and obviously that hasn't happened yet. And I think a lot of people have ha- now now question that statement. So I would need to see in these final three games to make me think differently about the direction and the progress of this program. I would need to see that turn. Um, it can happen. It could have the, 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 the opponents are there. If Nebraska was playing uh, the three weakest teams on its schedule here in November, that opportunity to, opportunity wouldn't necessarily exist. 
but you have three of the best teams on the schedule. Um, I would say certainly the best team on the Nebraska schedule right here in Lincoln this Saturday. It presents a great opportunity. Um, hey, as unrealistic as it seems right now as we tape this, if Nebraska beats Ohio State, wow, that really ch- would change the discussion that we're having. And I think some people would say, oh, you can't, you can't make a decision based on the outcome of one game. Well, maybe you can. Um, maybe you can if, if Nebraska has been as close as it's been on the scoreboard and was able to take that and then get over the hump against Ohio State, which has been the definition of dominant against Nebraska in the past five years. I, I wrote um, a story that published Thursday on The Athletic about the Nebraska-Ohio State series in the past five years. Um, well, really in the past decade, but focusing on, on these past five years. And there, there's one game in there in, in the five, the middle game uh, in, in 18, that was an outlier where Nebraska played the Buckeyes close and, and had a chance to pull off an upset uh, on the road. But uh, the rest have just been wipeouts. And I think they, they present a snapshot of where both of these programs are nationally and within the Big Ten. So if Nebraska can turn the tables on that, then it represents something really big for Scott Frost in this program. And I, and I would say you follow, if you follow that up then with a good performance against Wisconsin, a good performance against Iowa, then it's a much different conversation on, on Black Friday than the way this thing is pointing right now. Yeah, that 18 game is looking more and more like it was just Nebraska uh, had some things break right, and they caught a really bad Ohio State defense because um, that was a that was a down. Yeah, Ohio, Ohio State, State was reeling. You know, Ohio State was reeling. Yeah. yeah, Ohio State was reeling after that. They were coming off a loss at Purdue. It wasn't a good defense. Um, you know, Martinez caught fire that day, like he like he has done at times in his career, and really mm-hmm. got rolling. But you know, give him credit because they were playing on the road, um, and that was a resilient. That second half of 2018, there's a reason that Nebraska was picked to win the Big Ten West by a lot of people in 19 coming off of that, that finish in 18. Um, they were playing well and doing, and doing some really nice things uh, there just you know, on a stretch that started just five or six games into the Frost era. Yeah. Um, so, so the follow-up to, to what we were just talking about, the follow-up to, to you saying, I, I would need to see them turn a corner. Can you see that change or that corner turned that you're wanting to see in three losses or does it, does it, I know, I don't think you can. No? I don't think you okay. can. I don't care if you're by one point each and because, because if they're by one point each, then you've continued to basically do the same thing. I mean, you've continued to, to show that you can play teams, good teams close, but that you can't get over the hump. So how is that different than where we're at right now with, three losses by one score already this season against top 10 teams. I mean, two of these three teams Nebraska is going to play are not top 10 teams. Uh, one definitively is. Yeah. Uh, the other two are, are hugely important for Nebraska to beat in the long term if it's going to, um, you know, reach the first what – what I would see is like the first major hurdle in rebuilding the program is to be competitive and, and have a chance to win the Big Ten West. Well, historically, the teams that you need to beat to do that – are Iowa and Wisconsin. So even with those teams outside of the rankings um, or outside of the top 10, they're in the rankings. If you, if you uh, check the 
first edition of the college football playoff um, rankings, but uh, um, <laughs> even with them outside of the, the, the top 10 or top 15, those games are, are immensely important. I wouldn't, and I wouldn't in any way down, downgrade the significance if Nebraska wins, but if it loses by one point or, or 30 points, um, it's not turning a corner. So that naturally leads us to the quarterback discussion, I think, because this off season is, is potentially a, a natural pivot point for the program or a natural sort of point of transition for the, for the program. Eugene Martinez will have another year because of COVID. If he wants to return, you know, I'm sure he probably has that option. Um, We don't know if he wants to return or not for Nebraska. The question becomes interesting, particularly so if like what you said happens and they lose, you know, three games, three more games close you're like, well, what, what has changed? Um, I posed this question to the Hill varsity team after the Purdue game. And I said, does Frost just change his quarterback with the thinking that, well, the only chance I have to save my job now is, is hoping to catch lightning in a bottle with a different quarterback. And, and mm-hmm. the response to that question was, no, he probably doesn't do that. And he gets asked about, make uh, whether he thought about a quarterback change in in the post-game press conference after Purdue and he said no the thought never crossed my mind and then on Monday he again referenced like we talked about that he is waiting for that sort of redemptive moment for Adrian Martinez and and, you know like you said sort of the some of the response to that was well he should be more focused on what is going to allow the team to win games and what's going to allow his quarterback to have um, a, a nice moment and and I guess you know, the natural kind of progression there is, well, is a different quarterback what's best for the team to win games? Frost shut that down pretty emphatically. What did you think of that? Yeah, I think he said that's not a story. So, uh, yeah, thank you. For, <laughs> thank you for, you know, any any help that uh, we can get as writers in determining what's a story and what's not is, is appreciated. So uh, I took that to mean that you cannot expect to see Logan Smothers playing in a critical moment of, in any of these next three games, no matter what happens, unless Adrian Martinez gets hurt. He's just not going to do it. Um, he's, it's almost like he wouldn't do it, even if he knew that it was the only thing that could save his job. It's like the last, the last thing that he will cling to with, with n- no chance of, um, of budging. Um, is that admirable part, or is that stubborn? It's stubborn. You could also say it's admirable, but it's definitely stubborn. It's not something that you would see from, and I hate to use him as the example because he's the, he's the unrealistic standard. It's not something that you would see Nick Saban do. Just, he runs his organization at Alabama like it's an NFL franchise. Well, I mean, we have and, seen him do the opposite. I mean, he replaced Jalen Hurts with Tua. Like we have, we yeah, have seen right. him make that decision. We've seen it. We've, yeah. We've seen it. Yeah. You know, Scott Frost has already tried that with Martinez, and I think that plays into this equation. He tried it last year to sit him down, and it it failed somewhat spectacularly with the way that Luke McCaffrey played in that Illinois game, his second start. And I think Frost, he appreciates the way that Martinez handled it and that Martinez was there and was graceful through that process and returned to the position 
um, without complaining, at least externally, and worked to get himself better. I think Scott Frost really, really values what happened with Martinez a year ago mm-hmm. because that could have been disastrous to bench your, your, your veteran starting QB, replace him with the young up-and-comer, have that go awry, and then not be able to go back to the original guy. But he was able to go back to the original guy. So it's unthinkable, I think, in Scott Frost's mind for him to try to pull that a second time, even though it would happen in other in other places, in other scenarios. This week specifically, I have been wondering more and more about if if the thought process would be different, if he would operate differently right now, if the Luke McCaffrey situation as it played out last year hadn't happened, because it, you know, the further distance we get away from, from that kind of um, quarterback situation, the more it looks like McCaffrey was just a miss in terms of evaluation at quarterback. Um, And there is, there's just a lot we don't know about what Logan Smothers is as a quarterback. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I just, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know. And I, I think a lot of people are, are like, well, I, I just kind of want to, I kind of want to see what it would look like, but you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with you in, in that. I just don't think it's, I just don't think that that's a move that Frost is, is going to make, um, willing to make, willing to even maybe entertain, um, which, which. You know, it sort of makes the the last three games interesting in that, well, what's the likelihood that things are going to be any different? It's probably small, right? Yeah, I mean, they're they're tied together, those two. I mean, it was, was, as you know, his first phone call or Mario Verduzco's first phone call Mm -hmm. when they won the American championship and accepted the job at Nebraska and item number one was let's go get ourselves a quarterback. Mario stepped into an office and dialed up Adrian Martinez. And, you know, it was a storybook kind of uh, tale, how the, how they connected and Frost and, and Mario were, were soon thereafter in Fresno in Martinez living room and, and, he was no longer a Tennessee commitment, and, and he was the headliner of Frost's first recruiting class and started as a true freshman. You, you know, I mean, your listeners know the, the story there. So they are, they are connected to each other at such a deep level that I just, I, you know, and then, and then when you take into account also the way Martinez has, has handled, um, you know, all of the disappointment um, and, and, and the way that he, that he handled last year, getting benched. Um, it's just it's just impossible for me to see a situation where Logan Smothers gets a chance if Adrian Martinez is healthy uh, the rest of this month. Yeah, I, I think he, I, there, I think in Frost's mind, there are just a lot of there are a lot of parallels. He sees a lot of of what he went through as a player with with Adrian, and and you know from a from a human standpoint, the, the human element piece of it, um, I can I can certainly respect the way that he has operated with regards to Adrian. And, and, and I, and I think it is, you know, I asked you if it was admirable or stubborn. I, I think it's both, um, which, you know, I think is what you said as well. Um, but you know, like college football coaching, it's cutthroat. And 
I guess we'll, I, I guess we'll see. Um, have you given a prediction for the Ohio state game? Like what, like, what do you think happens? Cause this Ohio state team um, defensively, they were gettable at the beginning of the season, but they've really figured some things out. They changed some stuff in terms of personnel and they've been hammering people the last few weeks. Nebraska has a positive net differential in yards. They've outscored their opponents on the year by almost 80 points. Um, offensively, at times, we've seen the scheme work. We've seen them move the ball when they get into the red zone, and, and it's a different story. Like, do you think that that this game can be closed, or do you just think it's just going to be more of the same what the series has been? I think uh, I think it can be close because I've seen Nebraska play well against good competition, especially at home. But I think Ohio State brings a different kind of challenge than what Nebraska has faced in any of its games against top 10 opponents this year, including Oklahoma. And you can see that. I don't agree with a lot of what the college football playoff committee did on on uh, Tuesday of this week. But um, I do uh, I do agree that Oklahoma hasn't earned a top four spot. And Ohio State, I think, probably has, despite sitting where it is right now. I mean, there's not any reason to be concerned if you're in Columbus, because if that team continues to win, it's obviously going to move up. Um, it doesn't have margin for error, which I think is another scary component if you're in a future Ohio State opponent starting this week with Nebraska about what's left for the Buckeyes. But um, I haven't, you know, I made a prediction on a, on a radio show in, in Ohio. Uh, I said 42 to 17, but, uh, so I guess that's, that's how I feel. Um, I do think that it can be close at the beginning in a similar way to what we saw at Ohio state last year, but I would caution that that was a first game of the year scenario even though it was October 24th and you know while both teams were not at their best uh, Ohio State obviously had a higher ceiling and more room to grow than Nebraska did at that stage and I think if they would have played later in the year uh, you, you probably wouldn't have seen Nebraska hanging around 17 to 14 late in the second quarter but that's what happened and I think this year uh, Nebraska is better talent wise and Ohio State probably is too, but uh, mm -hmm. um, I think that, uh, that it can hang around. I think that, that uh, we may see something somewhat similar where Nebraska comes out swinging and, you know, there's some excitement in the stadium at the beginning, um, but the superior skill and overwhelming talent on the other sideline, um, you know, takes over uh, in the middle of the game and, and, um, the score has a chance to get out of hand. Well, the thing that effectively ended that game last year was early in the third quarter. It was a fumble from Martinez. It was a scoop and score touchdown for Ohio State. Um, mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. Pretty much put everything to bed. So, that, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So, um, Mitch, you've got stuff you got to do. You got to go. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it's always, I always love hearing your perspective. It's, 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 Wonderful to have you on. Thanks for the time. Yep. Happy to do it. Anytime, Derek. Take care. Next, I'm going to welcome in Carolyn Rice from the Ozone.
Carolyn, thank you for coming on this podcast. You've been on here before to talk about Ohio State. Those games have not been very competitive in the past when Nebraska's played Ohio State. Hopefully we get a good game this season. I say that every single year, and uh, it has yet to be the case. But maybe maybe this year, maybe this year. How are you, Carolyn? I am doing great. Thank you. Excited to be back. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's um, this is an interesting Ohio State team. Um, <laughs> number five in the first college football playoff poll, I, I think – they probably felt that they had a chance to be in the top four. Oregon gets the fourth spot. Um, and it seems like that head to head between Oregon and, and Ohio state on September 11th was, was pretty important in deciding that. Um, and this is really, you know, this, this Ohio state team that's coming to Lincoln. It, it's kind of, when you look at their tape, it's a tale of maybe two teams. Um, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but you just look at the, the way that they started their season. Um, 45, 31 win over Minnesota in week one, I think everybody watched that game that turned into one of the, um, the more interesting games at the start of the season, they give up 31 points to Minnesota and, and Minnesota's running back. Mo Ibrahim is kind of running rough shot on the defense. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I use the phrase on this podcast, gettable to describe Ohio state's defense. I don't, I didn't, I don't, I didn't think it was bad just because I don't think you can have a bad defense given the talent that Ohio state has, but yeah. it definitely looked gettable. And so like, Against Minnesota, they give up 31. They obviously lose the next week at home to Oregon. They give up 35. And then there was there were a couple moments against Tulsa um, where, you know, you were kind of like, uh, what are we doing here, guys? And then, you know, fr- from that point on, like Penn State so far is the only team in the last five games to score 20 points on this Buckeye defense. So I, I want to start there with you. Let's just talk about Ohio State's defense and kind of what you have seen change from those first two or three games on as the season has progressed. Yeah. Well, I like what you said. I think gettable is a very good way to kind of describe what was happening in those first couple games, because we didn't really know what to expect coming into the season. Everyone in the secondary was completely new outside of Josh Proctor. Obviously he went down early in the season with his injury. So you kind of had a whole new group out there and you really don't know what you have until you're put to the test. And I think Ryan Day talks about it all the time, but with last year being the way that it was, the players weren't able to get game reps. Usually when Ohio State's up, we all know they bring in the second string in the third, fourth quarter, get those guys reps, get them game time. They didn't have that opportunity last year. So not only was it a completely new group coming into this season. It was a completely new group that hadn't had any playing time, any game experience. And I think you kind of saw that against Minnesota. And what surprised me most though was the run defense. Ohio State's traditionally been good on the ground. Run defense has been solid. Where they've struggled was the pass defense, but against Minnesota and against Oregon, we saw the struggles there. I think Oregon had 505 yards of offense, 269 of those were on the ground. That's the highest rushing total for an Ohio State opponent since Ryan Day took over as head coach. So that was what surprised me the most was starting out that just the run defense wasn't there. Against Oregon, they struggled setting the edge, getting outside on the field they were slow challenges reading the field couldn't force a three and out didn't have a sack one tackle for loss so I think gettable was exactly what Oregon that's how they would look at it they were easily capitalizing off the holes in the Buckeye defense and they just didn't have an answer I think against Minnesota we saw that the offense just just couldn't keep up that was that was the biggest difference right there the defense struggled but the offense just kind of carried the day so I think after Oregon it was really a wake-up call for this team not only because they lost but I remember talking to coach day the next day 
that they came in and they completely revamped the defense. He said, start from scratch. They're basically doing a completely different defense than what they had been implementing all fall camp, all earlier in the season. And I think the biggest thing was just personnel uh, in addition to scheme. I think that's where they found things weren't fitting because again, there wasn't that, the pass rush wasn't there. Um, the secondary was confused. They weren't able to read the field. I think you just saw them completely revamp the defense and maybe against Tulsa when it was still questionable, still a little bit gettable, right? Tulsa was able to capitalize off some things. They were still implementing that defense. Um, so that's the thing is they, they are a different team because they're doing completely different things. And, you know, we saw that against Dakar. And I think after Tulsa, that was the first game that we really saw them start to improve and implement those changes that were made. The pass rush was present coming into that game. They only had four sacks combined on the season and that game, they had nine, which was the most they've had as a team since 2007 against Wisconsin. Uh, the pass rush allowed the DBs to make plays. We saw pick six, we saw interceptions, things that just weren't there before. Um, and these guys were there. They were so close. It's just, they needed to be put in the right system, put in the right place. The single high safety wasn't working, especially with Josh Proctor out. Right. So you just saw things change and it was a completely different defense that they implemented. They made coaching changes, which have been handled very well. Um, so I think it's a completely different team, completely different defense. And you're seeing it just, you're seeing guys flying around, making plays, building confidence, getting, I mean, that's the biggest thing is it's not only the defense itself is different, but it just looks different. And it's the same people out there. So clearly they made uh, some big changes. And I think you're seeing them just continue to build on that and improve as the season continues. It's a testament to the roster that they've put together that they're able to just scrap, <laughs> scrap a defense that they that they put together in, in fall camp and, and do something completely yeah. different even after the season has started. Yeah. Um, one one of the things that that is interesting, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. When you look at Ohio State defensively over the last five, six, seven years, they, they had the Bosa brothers, then they had Chase Young. They had just this incredible run of dominant pass rushers that you knew when you saw them, yeah, they're going to the NFL. Um, they don't have a guy in the top five in the Big Ten in sacks so far this season. Mm -hmm. They didn't have one last year. Is there is there a, a guy that you could see becoming that on this Ohio State defensive line? You know, I don't know. I think that's a good question because I looked at that coming into the season. I think a lot of people thought it would be Zach Harrison. I think everyone kind of assumed he would fill that role and he was the next man up and not that he hasn't been. I mean, I think he's been productive. I think he's been solid, but I'm really seeing, you know, Ohio State likes to do running backs by committee. I think it's been defensive line by committee. I think the production's coming from so many different people um, you never know who it's going to be each week. We saw Jerron Cage had a touchdown. We saw Tyreek Smith just continue to improve after everything he's been through his injuries. So it's coming from guys on the inside, guys on the outside. Antoine Jackson had a great game against Penn State. I don't think you can put it to one individual. I think what you're seeing is each game, you never know who, whose game it's going to be. Because I think at this point, we've seen someone step up in each game. And I think a lot of the production has actually come from the interior defensive line, which was surprising um, on my end. But I think that's been the biggest thing is it's not really one individual person. It's more so you have a lot of guys there who, who can step up at any moment. And I think guys are just kind of having their own games. Um, Teron Vincent, Javante John Baptiste, Tyler Fred. I mean, those guys have been in and out with injuries as well, but you're still seeing combined the production. And I don't think it comes from 
one individual. Maybe in the future, you know, I think people thought Jack Sawyer or JTT would kind of be that. Um, so I think maybe in the future, you have the potential to kind of develop some of those younger guys and maybe have a guy like that. But I think right now, what you're seeing is just the combined depth and experience of, of players who are ready to step up and make plays. Let's switch to the other side of the ball now. Um, and, okay. I, and we'll start with, with CJ Stroud and, and Travion Henderson, which is pretty much the engine of their offense. Yeah. Um, so Stroud hasn't thrown an interception since the Tulsa game. He had three in the first three games. He doesn't have one since. He has 15 mm-hmm. touchdown passes in his last five games, which coincidentally is when Ohio State has started to look a little bit more like Ohio State. <laughs> Travion Henderson leads the Big Ten in rushing yards per carry. He's maybe one of the best running backs in the country already as, as a true freshman, um, mm-hmm. which if people followed his recruitment, I don't think they are surprised by that. But still, it's, it's impressive to see a, a youngster play that well, um, specifically against Big Ten competition as a running back. So, so those two guys in, specific, mm-hmm. in particular um, – where have you seen the most growth from them as the season has kind of progressed? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the biggest thing is confidence. I think what you're seeing is just people who are growing in their roles and becoming more confident in what they're doing. And I think that shows up on the field. I know it sounds cliche and it's, it's an intangible thing, but I, I think that's the biggest thing is Stroud's game has improved because his confidence, his personality has just changed when he talks to the media. He's just growing and developing in that role. And I think the same thing with Trey Henderson. Um, but I think the biggest thing was just coming into the season, again, kind of like the defense, we didn't really know what to expect. I did hear throughout fall camp that Travion Henderson was looking like the guy, uh, even though he was not you know, listed one or two as they went through drills. But I did hear that he was had the potential. And I think that's the biggest thing that he gives that offense is he has that home run ability and he can pick up yards while doing it. So even if he, you know, doesn't always get the home run, you see him fighting through tackles. He's hard to take down. He just, he just picks up yards, man. I I can't explain exactly how, but he just does. Uh, That's why his average is, is where it is because he just does a good job of doing that. But I think with Stroud, you saw that you know, coming in, he just needed to be a guy that could just get the ball in the hands of the playmakers. He didn't need to be, you know, the all-star quarterback to make the plays himself. Ryan Day talks about this all the time, how he just didn't have any expectations for him. His goal was just to be the leader that his team needs him to be, get the ball in the hands of the playmakers. I mean, you have Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Jackson Smith, and Jake. I mean, you have so many weapons on that offense. Stroud's job coming into this was just to get the ball in their hands, make the right reads, make the right plays, and, and do that. But I think what you're seeing from Stroud now is more than that. I think we saw that in the first couple games, like, okay, he's getting the job done. I know a lot of fans weren't happy. They're like, are we sure this is the guy that's, I think he was just doing that, you know, getting the job done as the quarterback. Now that he's grown, he's confident in his throws. He's played in big 10 games. He knows what to do in these moments. I think you're seeing his true ability just, just to make big plays and do that. So I think the biggest change I think is just you have two freshmen, again, who haven't had a lot of game experience, now getting comfortable, growing in their roles. They're confident. They see what they can do. I mean, Trey Henderson had had to really fight for those yards against Penn State. That was not easy. He talked after the game about how difficult that was for him. But the fact that I think they they kept trying the run game to get things going, if they can get through that, they see that, okay, you know, we have a chance to do some good things. Red zone offense has has been the biggest struggle question mark at this point after uh, that game against Penn State. But I think still as players and as individuals, you're seeing those two young guys really grow and get more competent out there on the field. Yeah, it it's one of those things, confidence, comfort. It, it's a it's a simple explanation, but I think like 
for the, for the people that watched Stroud against Minnesota and Oregon to start the year, they saw a guy that he was just a, a little jumpy um, yeah. with some of his throws. They were just kind of going high. And you saw a guy that had all the arm talent, all the ability in the world to be able to make those throws. And he was yeah. just a young guy that was throwing a little high. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think confidence and, and comfort, that's kind of what I, what I was curious if, if mm-hmm. uh, you would say. Um, yeah, and I think like you said, you see it. Sorry, I just want to throw this. Um, oh, you're after, fine. after the game, Stroud was a totally different person. I think just you could tell how confident he was with his game and just with being around the media. I mean, when he came in, he was, it was so hard for him, right? I mean, everything was new. So I think confidence you know, on the field really shows up, comfort on the field shows up. But I think even off the field, you're seeing that they're just so much more comfortable with where they're at and how they're playing at this point. So uh, it's it's kind of hard for people to see that outside of that. But I think at the media, we all kind of looked at each other and we're like, oh, who, who is this? Who is this guy? Um, and I think Stroud's just just growing as a person as well. How would you assess the the, the play from the offensive line? Um, in terms of in terms of protecting a, another brand new quarterback to this yeah. point in the year, I think overall they have done a great job. They moved players around, which is something that you don't really see with offensive lines. Usually, offensive lines you you know have guys come in and develop for a couple years, and then you know you you put them together and you work on building chemistry and gelling and playing together and things like that. That's what you typically hear with an offensive line. Ohio State did something really different where they just tried to find the best five players on the field wherever they can go. So Thayer Munford switched positions to try and get you know, Nick Petit Freire. And I mean, they just, they totally moved players around and they're still moving players around. So when one guy goes down, you don't just see the number two right tackle come in. You see, you know, so-and-so move over. I mean, so they're always shifting the offensive line. And I think that gives them the best chance, again, of having the best players on the field who have that experience, who know what to do. Um, It's also good for them to show that versatility. I think overall, they've done a really good job. Now, Penn State was not their best game. And I think that was surprising for me was just how much Penn State's defensive line really controlled the line of scrimmage, how they dominated. Uh, I think Penn State game for the offensive line was was a real challenge. And and you saw that. Um, So I'm curious to see kind of how they adjust from that, how they grow. But I think outside of that, they've just been seamless. Usually when you don't hear about the offensive line, it's a good thing. Everything's going well. I think last week was the first time we kind of saw something that I was like, okay, where where'd they go? Um, so I'm curious to see how they bounce back, but I think throughout the season, they've just been consistently good and solid. Oh, I want to ask you big picture question now. Um, and you can answer this with your own thoughts, or if this is like a question that you've asked players on the team or coaches on the team, feel free to, to share their thoughts as well. So we talked a little in the open about the college football playoff rankings, Ohio state's number five. They're, they're one spot behind Oregon at number four. Mm-hmm. They are one spot ahead of unbeaten Cincinnati at number six. Um, they still have to play Michigan State and Michigan. Yes. So h- how, I guess, what's the comfort level right now with Ohio State? Because obviously the goal with this kind of team every year is to contend for a Big Ten title, contend for a spot in, in the, the college football playoff. Mm-hmm. Um, at number five, you're seemingly in a really good spot, but Michigan State is ahead of you at number three. You still have to play those guys, and Michigan looks like a, a real team. Um yeah. You know, we, we, you, anybody could talk about what happened against Michigan state and same old Jim Harbaugh, but you know, yeah. we'll, we'll see, you know, it remains to be seen. They still got to play the game. Um, what, what's the comfort level right now with Ohio state at number five? 
Yeah, I think, you know, when I first saw it, it I said it, it makes sense. I'm not mad. I think it makes sense at this point, considering Oregon does have the head to head. The committee said Ohio State does not have a signature win. I think that makes sense because Michigan State and Michigan, you know, those two games are probably going to be the biggest games. If you asked me before the season, I would not have thought that Michigan State would potentially be the biggest game of Ohio State season right. uh, by any means. But I think that that's going to shift things around a lot in the Big Ten East. So I wasn't mad about where they were at number five. Now, there were some other things I saw that I was, you know, raised some flags, Alabama too, you know, Cincinnati not, you know, being at six and then Oklahoma's wins not being valued. I mean, there were other issues, but I think with Ohio State so far, that makes sense. As far as Coach Day, he really doesn't talk about it. I mean, he, he we ask him about it. Every, we have to, right? We ask him. He said it's way too early at this point. They can't look at that. But I know the players do. And I think the players use it you know, to kind of give them a little chip on their shoulder. I, I think, you know, a lot of them looked at it uh, just from what I saw on social media, from talking to people that they were just like, okay, I see how it is. You know, I get it. Okay. Um, so I think the biggest thing though, is that things are going to change. I think this matters more for teams like Oklahoma, Cincinnati, and Alabama that kind of show, you know, it, it just shows what the committee values. People ask all the time, do, do they matter this early? Do, do rankings matter this early? And I think for teams like that, they do because it shows what they value and what they don't value uh, for teams that aren't going to have things that will change. But for the Big Ten East, for Ohio State, things are definitely going to change no matter how these next couple games for them come out with Michigan State and Michigan. So I think overall, it's it's fair. I don't think, you know, Coach Day is obviously not even paying any attention to it because it, it doesn't matter if they don't win the next game. So that's how he approaches it. But I think the players look at it and say, okay, you know, we kind of know what we have to do. So thanks. <laughs> That's kind of how they look, look at the playoff rankings. But like I said, things are going to change no matter what. So I think mm -hmm. the approach is just uh, to keep winning games. And, and Ohio State knows it doesn't matter if they don't continue to do that. So I certainly hope they don't use this and, you know, overlook any teams or anything like that. I, I doubt that'll happen. Um, but it's just, you know, at this point, it's so early because of the rest of the season. I do wonder if we reach a point where the playoff committee, you know, regardless of what happens with expansion, if the playoff committee decides we're just going to stop putting out weekly rankings, they're not going to do it, of course, because it's TV drama and, and yes, ESPN exactly. loves TV drama, but like they kind of box themselves in when they do weekly. Just, I, I feel like you just put one out at the end of the year and be fine. Like mm -hmm. put the final one out and, and be fine. I'm glad you brought up Alabama and it seems like you and I are in lockstep in, in thoughts on Alabama at number two. I yeah. saw that and I was like, um, okay. And then yeah. Kirk Herbstreet was on ESPN basically saying that it doesn't mean anything, which I completely disagreed with. Yeah. They are there. I mean, they're in a spot at number, like if they'd been, if they'd been number four, number five, I would have put them number five, which what I would have done doesn't matter, but I would have put them number five in thinking that, okay, you're number five now, but if you beat Georgia and you're going to play Georgia in the SEC title game, then you're in the top four. But if you don't beat Georgia, then you're not in the top four at number two. It kind of seems like they're saying, well, as long as you get to the SEC title game, you're in regardless right. of what happens against Georgia. And if, you know, if Cincinnati is, is not in the picture and you've got two SEC teams, then what happens with the Oregon, Ohio State, Michigan State, Michigan <laughs> kind of clump if Oklahoma stays unbeaten with the back half of their schedule? Like one of those teams and is getting left out. Maybe the Big Ten is getting shut out, depending on what happens down the back half of the season. I think um, I, I really am curious what Kevin Warren's thoughts were on, on, the, um, on the rankings. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting perspective. I'm sure. I mean, that's the thing is I, I approach it the same way. I'm like, does it matter? Does it not matter? I think to, to a certain extent, it's so early that you look at all these teams on the board with Georgia, Alabama, Michigan state, Ohio state, those teams are all going to play each other. So something is going to change no matter what. But I think like I said earlier, you're, you're seeing what the committee values and what they don't value. So right now they're not valuing Cincinnati's wins as much as they're valuing Alabama's, you know, program and just that one loss. But, you know, it's just, it's, so it's hard to make it make sense. I think no matter what, it's going to change, but I, I, I did see Alabama at number two and I'm like, okay, so clearly they value, even though they're seven and one with a loss to 14, their best win is a, a win over a number 16 team, Michigan state's eight and no with the win over number seven, Michigan, but they still have Alabama head. So you're, you're seeing what wins and losses they value more. And I think it does matter. Um, but the reality is it's still going to change. So we'll just have to see how, how much those wins and losses do matter moving forward. But this is certainly, you know, the committee made, made their point and, and they're showing, you know, how they view Alabama's loss. And I think that is going to play a bigger role in the overall playoff picture than I initially or anyone maybe even thought that they did. You have the level-headed, let's not get too worked up. It's not too good. It's not too bad. You have the boring take. And and <laughs> and I say that, I say that with, uh, with respect, you have the boring take. I appreciate it. Yeah. You're, not, you're yeah. not out here creating drama on a podcast. No, not at all. Well, I mean, I think with Ohio State at five, how how can I, right? I mean, it's not, you know, they still have a lot of their season to play. And when I'm looking at this board, uh, and I mean, I'm, I physically have it pulled up and looking at it, I just, I see teams that still have to play each other. So I, I know that moving forward, um, it's going to change no matter what. This is just, this is just the beginning, but it certainly is the beginning to uh, an exciting November and exciting uh, postseason. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to close with this, this is not a question I sent to you ahead of time. So apologies there. Um, Nebraska has been in, in some instances, jokingly referred to in some instances, seriously referred to legitimately referred to as the Mm. best three win team in the country. Um, They are a team that it has a positive net yard differential Mm. this year. Um, They've taken top 10 teams down to the wire and they've also short-circuited at really bad times and against this Ohio State team not been very competitive um, save for the, the 2018 game mm-hmm. um, what what has been sort of the the tone or maybe the message from Ohio State is it a sense of like we just got to handle our business do you get those like hey they're better than their record comments like what like what's been said about Nebraska this week by Ohio State I think the biggest message has been to not overlook this team. I mean, usually we go into games and they say, or, you know, press conferences before the games and they say, it's the same approach every week. We look at every team, you know, I mean, the typical talk, but I think message this week and what we're hearing from the players is that they know Nebraska's record doesn't speak to how good of a team they are. Coach Days mentioned that the players mentioned that. So they know that all of their losses have been eight points or less. So the fact that they know that means that they're looking at the games. They know exactly what to expect from this team. Adrian Martinez uses his legs. He's, you know, team's leading rusher, I think second in the conference in passing yards. He's played a lot of football. The guys know that. So I think the message this week is just to not look at this as, you know, just, just any other game. Not that I think they ever really do, but I think more, more so this week than maybe any that I've seen, they know that this Nebraska team specifically 
uh, can can pose some problems. So I think the message is just to not overlook this team. And um, of course, it's handle business as usual. That's just what they always they always say. But the fact that the team knows this much about you know their losses and and what they're capable of doing, I think shows how much they're valuing um, and how much they know how good this this Nebraska team can be. We'll see what happens on Saturday. I'm I'm, yes. I'm very much. I don't want to jump ahead, but I'm very much looking forward to Ohio State's last two games. They go. Michigan State and they go at Michigan. That, that's going to be some some really good football played at, at, the, at the end of the season. Carolyn, you got to go. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I really appreciate you giving us some time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. Shouts to Caroline and Mitch for coming on. Go find and follow them on Twitter. They both do really, really good work. Read HailVarsity.com through the weekend. We'll be back next week. Thanks, guys. Hood at Media Production.